Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, my first podcast that accompanies my next album that happens to be called No Man's Land. 13 songs about historical women who you likely won't have heard of, but definitely should have. Every week, I'll be releasing a song and telling you the story of the woman it's about right here. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. So, thanks everybody for tuning in to my podcast. And seeing as this is the first episode, it's probably worth me trying to explain what it is we're all doing here. Um, As a writer, I've spent most of my career to date doing two things, which was writing songs about myself and promising that I would never make a concept album. And yet, here we are. Being a huge history nerd, uh, I read an awful lot of history, and through my wanderings through the historical record, I keep a little mental file of stories that I come across that I didn't know, that I think are interesting, uh, and perhaps worth sharing at parties to try and make myself sound more interesting. And uh, given the nature of our history and our culture, more often than not, those stories that I didn't know and that people tend not to know tend to be about women. After a while, these stories started beginning to turn into songs, uh, and lo and behold, I've stumbled across a concept. Uh, In the beginning, it was just going to be a handful, maybe an EP, but the stories kept coming. There were so many beautiful stories I wanted to share, so after a while, I ended up with an entire album, and it felt to me like it was worth getting deeper into the actual history behind these songs, and so we have a podcast. Sister Rosetta. So I thought I'd kick off with the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. Godmother of rock and roll. The original sister soul, all our music was in her. I read a lot of music history, uh, being a musician, uh, so I'm interested in the history of my trade and my craft. And if you read about the history of rock and roll, you tend to sort of circle around this mystical figure of Sister Rosetta Tharp, about whom I essentially knew nothing. Uh, but you sort of can't avoid her, and sooner or later you realise how important she was. So let's start by talking about the story of the original Sister of Soul, the original godmother of rock and roll, Sister Rosetta Tharp. And for this first inaugural episode, I'm very glad to say that I'm in the studio with my friend and touring partner and partner in songwriting crime, Emily Barker. Hi, Emily. How are you doing? I'm really good. It's lovely to see you. And I'm excited to be here and talk about the great Sister Rosetta Tharp, an African-American gospel singer and guitarist from the mid 20th century, who uh, is somebody who I've written a song about for this album, but somebody that you also have written a song about. I have indeed. I wrote a song for Sister Rosetta called Sister Goodbye. Which hopefully we might hear later in the podcast. I would be delighted. Excellent. Well, so personally, um, you know, my attraction to Sister Rosetta Tharp as a character stems initially from the fact that I was interested in the history of rock and roll and music that I love. And anybody who reads into that kind of thing, sooner or later you come across the name of Sister Rosetta Tharp, but not perhaps as soon as you should do. No, I agree completely. Um, I first discovered Sister Rosetta when I was a teenager, actually, because a festival came to my town in Bridgetown, Western Australia, a blues festival. So I learned about her then, but it wasn't until uh, about five years ago that I learned more about her story. And it was by yeah. reading a book by Gail Wald called Shout, Sister Shout. Yes. Have you read it? I have now read it since okay, we last had this conversation. You... Great, great. Isn't it mind-blowing? <laughs> it's incredible. It's a, it's, and, and in fact, I mean, I, I learned so much from it. And we're going to get into talking about her and talking 
talking about are two different songs and the approaches that we took to the subject matter. But to kick things off, um, I was on tour in the US recently and I was in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was lucky enough to visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where Sister Rosetta was inducted only last year. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have a conversation with curator Nuaka Onwusa, uh, who took me into the vaults uh, down. It was like going backstage. It was amazing. We went down a flight of stairs through a thick door which had a code on it away from the crowds of tourists. It was lovely. Uh, and we talked about <laughs> Sister Rosetta and her legacy. You lead with that mic and do what you got to do. Okay. Awesome. So today I'm at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And not only that, I'm in the vaults. I'm in the backstage. I've got through. I didn't even get a laminate. Um, and I'm feeling very privileged <laughs> to be here. And I'm with Waka who works here at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hi. Hi, Frank. It is awesome to have you here. Welcome to the United States. It's wonderful to be here um, and uh, to be in the backstage and to have all of this stuff. And today we're going to talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, who is uh, somebody who's incredibly important to the history of rock and roll, Absolutely. I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and indeed somebody who's been underappreciated until quite recently. Absolutely. You are completely right about that. I mean, we're talking about a woman who is born into, you know, rural community in Arkansas, right. you know, early 30 or 20s, um, where segregation and all of that is still prevalent right. in America. So, yes. And yes. Like, so her parents are uh, cotton pickers, I think yes, I'm right in saying. Mm-hmm. See, now you're going to have to help me out. Yeah. The, the Delta. She's yes. not quite from the Delta, not per se. Not quite from the Delta, but the sound, the, you know, the religion, all of sure. those things, obviously are very much a part of her day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So, so she's in the South. So she's, she's in, in the South. Consi- yeah. I mean, people consider Arkansas a part of the South. Where it's kind of like early 20th century, I mean, Jim Crow is a thing. Yes, it's still a thing. It, yeah. Again, the segregation is so real. I mean, it's, you know, we're talking about cotton cotton fields, cotton sure. plants. Right. So she she begins in the church, right? Yes, and it's it's not just it's not Church of England like I'm thinking of. Right. We're in a whole other world here, right? Yes, yeah, very Pentecostal, Church right. of God in Christ. Um, yes. I have some experience with that. So, no, it's very strict. I mean, the rules uh-huh. are very strict in how things come up. But for someone um, to be singing gospel, starting that yeah. way, um, the ideals of, you know, being married and, ha- you know, sure. like just a traditional style of what a woman and a black woman should be doing, she defied right. all of that. Right. I think I'm right in saying she, her first kind of musical outing, she's touring with her mother. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Touring with her, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who's also singing gospel music yeah, as yeah. well. I mean, and then just some of these amazing influences. You talk about gospel influences in her life, yeah. like Mahalia Jackson and things uh-huh. of that nature. Mm-hmm. She's pulling from all of these sounds. Right. And, of course, that influences the sound that she eventually evolves and sure. has. Yeah. So, so the get diving deeper onto the Pentecostal thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm right in saying this is Holy Rollers is like yeah, a nickname Holy that Rollers. gets given for that. Absolutely. And people like speaking in tongues speaking and that in kind tongues, of business. Shouting, falling out. So, yeah. But it's about, there's volume, there's energy there. Absolutely. Right. And that energy, she was able to capture that musically. And sure. that's an amazing thing that you see from musicians who um, start out in the church and then, you know, perform this music in a secular, right. in a secular realm. So, Emily, that was me chatting with Waka uh, backstage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, recently in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was an amazing thing. We were in this kind of archival room. She was wearing cotton gloves. uh, (laughs) And we had this selection of stuff in front of us, including photographs, touring flyers. There were session notes from a session in 1938, all this kind of thing. I loved that um, Waka touched on the relationship 
between Sister Rosetta and her mother, Katie yeah. Bell Newbin as well. They were mm. incredibly close. And I think Sister Rosetta's father was out of the picture quite early. Yeah. And Katie, she used to play mandolin in the church as well. So it was sort of uh, sisters in into music. And I think she did her first gig in a church when she was about six years old. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and was on the road before she was 10. Exactly. Like with her mum, the two of them uh, hit yeah. the road together. I like to think I'm cool because I toured when I was 16, but she, was, <laughs> she beat me on that. Um, her mother stayed with her right until the end of her life. Yeah, absolutely. I think they remained really, really close. And after Katie passed, I think Sister Rosetta found it really hard yeah. to continue yeah. doing music. I remember reading stories which were wonderful about when Sister Rosetta was becoming famous. And, you know, obviously she crossed a lot of boundaries and moved into more yeah. secular music. And she's hanging out with, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and people like this. And, yeah. and her mother's kind of sat in the background, yeah. kind of glaring at everybody. <laughs> While these kind of like, there's a photograph of her somewhere where she's smoking a cigarette, and Amazing. you can see her mother in the background looking furious. Yeah, but she was her rock as well. Yeah, I of think course. Yeah, what, absolutely. You know, got her through. And uh, also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so we walked around. I saw one of her guitars. Uh, there was a, a resonator guitar there. Wow. Um, resonators, for those who don't know, it's a guitar that has a large metal disc in the body of it, which amplifies it and makes it louder. Because there's this huge thing, you know, before the invention of pickups and electrification in guitars, about how you make guitars sound out in the midst of a brass section and mm. a drum kit and all the rest of it. And uh, so the resonator was her way of being heard. One of the things that we have here, and I don't know if we can actually talk about one yeah, of the absolutely. artifacts that let's, we have here, but I mean, it's really great that all of the photos that we have of her, she has her guitar in hand. And yeah. knowing that one of her earliest guitars was a national resonator, yeah. I mean... I think that's a really powerful move for a female to have yeah. this style of guitar. I mean, it's having that guitar. Those are those in in themselves are very rare to you know American music. Just the history of instruments in yeah. general. For her to have such a strong, swinging, holy rolling yeah, voice yeah, yeah, sure. with this really strong and powerful guitar. I mean, that says a lot about yeah. who she is. I, do, I, do, I can't think myself, and maybe you'd be about to correct me on this. No, but I can't ahead. really think of any other kind of iconic women of any color yeah. carrying a guitar from that period. Yeah, from, from that period. Yeah. Now, I mean, we have like a Bonnie Raitt who will play a of national course. resident. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but, but someone... In the exactly, 1920s and 1930s. Carrying a guitar. Yeah. I mean, this picture is probably one of the earlier promos from her days at the Cotton Club. Right. So when you have Cotton Club girls wearing their midriffs and doing sure. what they're doing, yeah. she's totally... Everything opposite of that, and right. she's holding this really heavy guitar. She's holding a really heavy guitar, and she's yeah. she is. I mean, I'm not sure if this is quite the right word, but she's kind mm -hmm. of modestly dressed, should Absol we say? Very modestly dressed. Yeah. I mean, even the way her hair is styled, the cut of um, the shirt or the dress that she's wearing here. Yeah. I mean, we're looking, we're seeing. So, for you guys listening to us out there, Sister Rosetta, it's a very common picture that you have puff sleeves, this you know accordion style collar yeah. that really stops. Above and, and, anything. Yeah, and yeah. it's and it, there's a there's the dress goes right down. I ain't seen all the her way ankles. down to her. <laughs> yeah, beyond her yeah, ankles, yeah, right? right exactly. <laughs> so there she was, Sister Rosetta, looking uh, uh, very chaste in her picture, but performing at the Cotton Club. Yeah, yeah, um, amazing. The Cotton Club was for white clientele mm. and uh, and black performers, and there's something really kind of racially exploitative going on there. And some of the routines were really, really like not cool, like involving kind of like jungle, uh, you know, themed musical numbers and all this kind of thing. And it's it's gross, yeah. essentially. It's, right. it's 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 totally gross. Yeah. But it, but she she was kind of there because you know that's where you went if you wanted to be a serious performer. Mm. But it seems so mad to me that um, black people couldn't go to the show. Yeah. 
Just crazy. Yeah. Absolutely what crazy. A world. Yeah, but so she's there. And I mean, I wanted the guitar thing as well. Obviously, you're a guitar player. Yes. Hi. Hi. Uh, <laughs> Fellow guitarist. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we were saying the thing, you know, there have been obviously incredible female guitarists um, in the interim, but like there aren't really any other figures from that period of time. And and within the context of the photos of you see a performance from the 1920s and 1930s, a woman mm. holding a guitar is really unusual. Well, I actually wonder, because Sister Rosetta's story um, didn't come to light until recently, she was famous in her time but then forgotten, it actually does make me wonder how many other women at the time have been forgotten, especially African-American women. Um, I know that there was Memphis Minnie. She was uh, perhaps slightly later, but incredible guitarist from Memphis. Oh, wow. African-American woman again. So who knows who else we're yeah, missing? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, Sister Rosetta, you know, it's worth saying, like, she's not just a guitar player, she's an excellent guitar player. She's phenomenal. Yeah, and like, I mean, one of the things, when you see the footage of her, most of it from later in her life, her playing, like, she can play, you know? She has licks galore, and like, she's a way better guitar player than I am. And, oh, me and, too. Yeah, you know, and in the song that I wrote and recorded for the album, um, I attempted to incorporate a few riffs from Sister Rosetta's kind of playing. Amazing. Um, I mean, obviously in an amateur fashion but in the verse I included the classic rock and roll riff which is you know that one yeah and then I'm playing it badly um, <laughs> because I'm not as good a guitarist as Sister as that. But, uh, you know, I tried to bring that in because that's a riff that, I mean, the origins of that particular riff are lost in time. And believe yeah. me, I've tried yeah. to go back as far as you can. But it's certainly there are flavours of it within some of her music um, because it's that sort of bridge between kind of gospel and the blues and electrification Absolutely. and energy and the, the rich stew from which we find rock yeah. and roll. There, there was an, I, I, I put in a kind of like. Yeah, classic kind of like trying to get that kind of riff in as well but again I, we, it's not the most prominent thing in the mix on the record because no. I'm not sure I played it all that well I'm looking forward to hearing it yeah but I mean you know if we'd had her in the studio we could have turned her up yeah absolutely <laughs> so to recap we've got Sister Rosetta she's born in Arkansas in 1915 she grows up in the Pentecostal church she's touring with her mother her mother and her moved to Chicago I think I'm right in saying? That's right, yeah. Yes, and they moved to Chicago where sort of electrification is starting to happen as far as music goes and Chicago blues is becoming a thing. She continues to sing in the Church of God in Christ in Chicago. Then she moves to New York um, and she finds herself a record deal and she gets a gig at the Cotton Club. I think initially it's just an opener. And the first flyer, which I think I saw, uh, she's oh, she's, an ar- she's an afterthought on the bill. It's just kind of like, this name, this name, this name. Oh, yeah. Do you remember and any of the other names? I can't off the top of my no. head. Terrible. I know. But um, uh, but so she gets this gig and, and she's an instant smash at the mm. Cotton Club. And the Cotton Club is this, as we were saying, it's this club uh, that sort of presents African-American music in New York to a white audience. Uh, so it's black performers, white audience. Um, and she goes on and she does her first show there and she's an instant hit. You and I can imagine what it must be like, even now. Even now, to see somebody like Sister Rosetta. Yeah, walking out on stage with a Gibson and SG. Shredding and shredding the guitar. Shredding. Shredding. Whilst dressed like <laughs> as a as a chaste gospel woman. And and shredding and like howling and yelling and, oh, and like singing and, and holy rolling and, and yeah. speaking, effectively musically speaking in tongues. Um, you know, she, she has this instant impact. She releases her record Rock Me in 1938 which becomes uh, a huge hit instantly. Uh, the war then breaks out. And uh, interestingly, she's one of the few black performers who continue to perform through the war. 
She released, I think it's, I'm right in saying it's called a V-disc, because during the war, shellac was uh, in short supply for military reasons. So the, the recording industry didn't release many records during the war, and only government-sanctioned releases were permitted, which were called V-discs, which were generally released to entertain the troops, and she did release a V-disc. I think by the end of the war, she's kind of at the peak of her fame. Yeah. And then she starts touring with the singer Marie Knight, who I think she finds and kind of like picks from obscurity almost, Absolutely. is that right? says, sort of loves what she does, another yeah. gospel singer, piano player, mm. and she picks her up and says, she come see- on tour with yeah, me. Yeah, she sees her at a gig yeah. or something and yeah, says, that's my... Yeah, And then am I right in saying she like went to Marie Knight's mum's house? And asked and, and if like she could take to, her on the she, road. she was older than Marie Knight. She was. Yeah, she was. Yeah. yeah. Marie Knight's like a teenager. Yeah. And Sister Rosetta Tharp shows up at her mum's house <laughs> and says, I want to take your daughter on tour. Yeah. I mean, I can see that being an awkward conversation. Absolutely. But then at the same time, I mean, she's a she is a devout religious woman. I mean, yes. you know, it's it's not quite Keith Richards showing up at your door no. and asking you to take your daughter on tour, which I think would be a harder sell. Yeah. Um, so as we discussed at the beginning of this, you wrote a song about Sister Rosetta. I did. Uh, and it, it took a slightly different take on it to, to me. And uh, am, am I right in saying you wrote from the point of view of Marie Knight? I did indeed. On reading Shout, Sister Shout, this book by Gail Wald, I was really blown away by Sister Rosetta's relationship with Marie Knight. There's a lot of speculation about their relationship. Potentially they were lovers. And, of course, being in the 1940s, it wasn't something that they were able to come out about. As if there weren't more lines for Sister Rosetta to cross. I know. And so, obviously, at that time, if they were, which it it certainly seems like they were lovers, they weren't able to come out. But regardless, they had an incredibly close relationship. And I loved um, hearing the stories about the two of them going out on the road. And this was when Sister Rosetta had enough money to buy big cars and the two of them would hit the road together and there, I remember there being some part about them setting up the PA system themselves or setting up their equipment themselves and yeah. doing a sound check and then going backstage and doing each other's hair and makeup yeah. before the show and then um, right. Marie like Knight in, Almost like in the car kind of thing like, yeah, yeah, it's so beautiful and then they would do these duo shows together where right. Marie Knight would accompany Sister Rosetta on piano and sing um, a lower harmony to Sister Rosetta's melody, who Mm -hmm. was obviously playing guitar too. And uh, one of my all-time favourite recordings of Sister Rosetta was a, it's very hard to come by, but a song, um, Precious Memories, the two of them doing a duo version of that song. It's absolutely stunning. Um, So when I got to writing my song, I wanted to sort of celebrate... Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp and and also this idea that we shouldn't forget about who she is. So I decided to sort of focus on Marie's perspective because another detail um, is towards the end of Sister Rosetta's life, it was Marie Knight who did Sister Rosetta's hair and makeup for the very last time before she was laid in her grave in right. Philadelphia in 1973. So. Right. Yeah, so I just love the, yeah. the beauty of their friendship. And, Absolutely. And also, just briefly, I, this is the thing that you told me about. Oh, yeah. she, she continued touring with one leg at the she end of her did. life. She did, yeah. She got um, an infected foot or something like that. She and was then she, diabetic, I think I might say. I think so. Yeah. Um, but she was she had this fear of doctors. Yeah. And so she refused to go to the doctors until it was sort of too late. And then she ended up having her leg amputated. And she was hopping around 
around on stage playing That's, guitar I mean, on one leg. So this again, is how fiercely determined also, this woman is to play her music. Just when you thought she didn't have anything else to bring to the table in yeah. terms of just being an irrepressible force. Absolutely, yeah. Know, playing with there one leg. There she goes again. Yeah, and, and as you say, standing up while she did it. I mean, John Martin lost mm. a leg, but he sat down afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sister Rosetta did not. No, she did not. So, no. um, Emily, dear yes. friend of mine, I was wondering if you could give us a, a, you know, a verse and a chorus of your song so we can hear your take sure. on the tune. Sure, so l- this is Sister Goodbye. I've sung sort of from the point of view of Marie Knight. I will be singing peace in the valley as I bid you farewell. Sweet holy roller, company keeper. So many stories to tell And oh, didn't it rain Precious memories falling down from the sky where we come to the lead and we insert a Sister Rosetta. There we go, Frank.
What an absolute pleasure that was. Uh, thank you for I being Sister Rosetta in that. Yeah, I know. Name. I mean, <laughs> people listening are like, he can't play the guitar. <laughs> um, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I want to talk more about our different approaches to the song. But mm. before we do that, we talked about just now about Sister playing with one leg and all, and all that kind of business. And part of that is because of her husband, I think I'm right in saying, who is kind of the villain of the story mm. a little bit. So she got married at a stadium show. At a stadium show in Washington, D.C. in 1951. Yeah. Most people in her life were not particularly stoked on this guy in no. the sense that he essentially had no other source of income and uh, just sort of pushed her to uh, perform even when she was, you know, getting older after her mother passed away. Oh, yeah. she'd lost a leg. Yeah. And, you know, he sort of pushed her on to perform. Yeah, and hence also there being no headstone for her yeah. grave when she was buried because he had swindled her money and was like, I'm not spending money on my wife's yeah. Gravestone. Yeah, and and and, apparently, and I think I think he got rid of her guitar and her piano like the day after <gasps> she died. Oh. And and did the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No, the ever... the white SG is gone. It's it's Where? been it's been lost no. because he got rid of it because he needed the cash for whatever he needed the cash for. It's a tragedy. I wonder if one day it's just going to show up. Somebody somewhere, somebody, somebody somewhere, somewhere has, has a white it. SG. Yeah. that they need to give to me. Yeah. <laughs> Or me. <laughs> or Emily, yes, one or other of us. And then we'll give it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Absolutely. after we've played a few shows with it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, the, the wedding's sort of an, an incredible sort of moment and a peak moment in her career in a way, mm. uh, certainly in the United States. And I, I was lucky enough to discuss that with Wacker a little as well. So <gasps> let's return to Cleveland to and that. talk about that. In my mind, I call this her Beyonce moment. I mean, this woman <laughs> took, I mean, she basically like took that and marketed the entire thing and created a whole album out of this yeah. entire experience. She played like, 25,000 people. Like, who does that for their wedding? I'm, I know. So I'm like, so before there was a Beyonce, there was a sister yeah. Rosetta Star. Well, who, I, know, I mean, just the yeah. whole market, the fact that she even thought to do that in that period yeah. is quite amazing. Well, I read that she's the first African-American woman to headline a stadium show. Yes. So this is a really cool point that we found. The bride that played guitar. So basically, again, like you mentioned, the first African-American to command a stage like this, but the marketing that went behind it. This is in the early 50s. And so, again, as we were calling it, I call it a Beyonce moment, so a promotional moment in history. Yeah. She sells out the ceremony in a Washington, D.C. baseball stadium, um, and she's playing electric guitar. She's playing electric yes. guitar yeah. here in this moment. So, It's such a dramatic thing to do, to sell tickets to your own wedding. Sell tickets to your own wedding. Uh, there wasn't an evangelist that could conduct a revival. This is a quote <laughs> um, here. So, I mean, it, it's pretty pretty amazing what she was able to do um let's see that night she signed a contract promising the producer uh to produce a new uh groom by the next year so like <laughs> using this as a publicity stunt she like went shopping for, for her husband yeah shopping for her husband yeah. i mean that's a good way to make money i guess yeah. right she, she found her way to yeah. to keep afloat yeah there was a little bit of backlash against the wedding i think i'm right in saying in the uh, on this side of the atlantic in america yes some people sort of saw it as like being a bit of a publicity stunt just as a publicity stunt and just fully calling her out i mean it was in ebony sure. magazine at the time during i mean so just to use all of these things at play so you're playing gospel music which i'm sure some purists are like here you are exploiting the genre 
Sure. Yes, for your course. own gain, you're playing that devil's music. Yep, yep, you're, yep. you know, you're also, um, you know, being very flamboyant about the sanctity of marriage sure. by putting your, you know, putting all of this on display. Yep. I'm sure there were, but those are some of the things that the feedback that people right. were feeling and saying yep. of that time. Again, this is yep. still very early. No one's ever done this, so of sure. course people are going to have yeah, something to say. Absolutely, yeah. But then and then she she enters this kind of like fascinating sort of second period of her well third arguably but yeah, like yeah. a later period of her career let's say which is where I feel personally like a lot mm-hmm. of her influence would come down to somebody like me mm-hmm. is that she goes to, she goes to England and there's yes. the whole kind of blues revival yes. that's happening there absolutely um, and you've got a lot of kind of like really kind of nerdy dorky English yeah. kids who are trying to find out where the music they like came yeah. from key moments and those are I mean some of the folks you know, who listen to those performances have been inspired by. I mean, you look at then the following year, the explosion of then British bands that are starting to develop one year after she goes to the UK, which is very telling of her impact. Yeah, so the stories of Eric Clapton and Keith Richards and all these people, they saw her play. Right. So yeah, so there it was, Waka talking about the one thing we haven't really touched on was this kind of later period revival that she had, mm. which was actually the first footage I ever saw of Sister Rosetta, was that this famous train platform show. It's just outside Manchester on a recently decommissioned rail platform uh, in 1964, and there's this like these hilariously dorky English kids. It's it couldn't be further from the Pentecostal church yeah. reaction to a sort performance. Could like just long-haired <laughs> white English kids, sort of with notepads, trying to clap in time. Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> clapping on the one and the three yeah. or whatever yeah. um, and she kind of comes off the train and like sort of waltzes down the platform I think she arrives by horse and cart oh that's right yes she does and the band's already playing yeah. and she gets off this little cart and she's yeah. dressed so glamorously high heels and as you said this first stall and long dress and she was really into wigs so she had this this wig on and and she walks sort of through the band past the band picks up her Gibson SG guitar yeah. and starts and just throws herself into this incredible she, performance she just of Didn't goes, It Rain. Yeah. She just hits a little at yeah. the beginning. It's like, wow. Yeah, it's amazing. That also, that was another thing I wanted to talk about is that, um, uh, so that song, she, that Didn't It Rain, she plays mm. there, which you mentioned in the lyrics to your beautiful song. Thank uh, you. Yes. Um, uh, and, and I found that interesting because something I did in the song that I wrote was to try and incorporate some of her song titles into the lyrics. I noticed um, that. In a way that I sort of want to explain a little bit here for those people who are listening to the song and wondering what it is I'm going on about. Strange things happen every day. Yeah. Uh, it was a huge hit for her um, in, in in her early career. Um, Down by the River, that was another one. Um, you know, and so there were moments in, in the lyrics that I was writing where I was trying to sort of like, and obviously I've got the words rocket in there as a reference to rock me. And it's, you know, just trying to kind of include references to her own music in the music that I put. And there's also the line in my song, Rosetta rolled her eyes when she played, which she did. Yeah. And I always love that. She, she's got this, and it's a very sort of Pentecostal thing. When she's playing, it's like she's completely lost. Yeah. Head back. And- Head back, eyes back. And she's just she's she's somewhere else do yeah. you know what I mean like she is communing with something that you and I can't see mm-hmm. but we might be able to hear yeah totally yeah. and it's a beautiful thing um, the one other thing I wanted to mention about the lyrics that I wrote which is kind of the great irony of this whole story from my point of view is that when I first discovered uh, Sister Rosetta and decided to write a song as we were saying earlier three or four years ago um, she was not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 
until she, last year. Well, but yeah. so I wrote the song when she wasn't. And yeah. um, there's a song by John K. Sampson uh, called Petition. Uh, John K. Sampson, one of my favourite songwriters, and he wrote this song that, that literally the lyrics are a petition mm. to have an obscure Canadian ice hockey goalie called Reggie Leach recognised by the Canadian Ice Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. And he wrote the song as a petition, made it into an online petition, oh, wow. got the requisite number of signatures <laughs> oh, and went down to the Ice Hockey Hall of Fame and played it in the lobby. Oh, and it's amazing. this beautiful, beautiful moment. And it's, you know, the chorus is, we, the undersigned, put forth his name for the Hockey Hall of Fame. Oh, and it's just glorious. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of nod to that. And I sort of had this idea that I was going to expand on that. You know, I was going to write this anthem and mm-hmm. then the world was going to wake up and recognise Sister Rosetta and I could take some tiny piece of credit for this. And then in the interim, she got inducted into the Rock and Roll Absolutely. Hall of Fame. Which is great for her. Amazing. And annoying for you me. You didn't get to do your, your petition. Well, I had but... to change the lyrics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because the original line was Rosetta for the Hall of Fame. Uh, and it was, you know, that was the kind of rallying cry of the song. And then she was in the Hall of Fame. I actually discovered this when I played it at a show hmm. uh, in Ohio, funnily enough. And, and at the end of the show, at the end of the song, someone from the audience shouted out, she's actually in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. And, uh, so what is the lyric now? Uh, well, Rosetta's in the Hall of Fame. Great. So, which is, you know, that works and it's, it works. it's factually correct. I wonder what was going on around the time that I think both you and I yeah. were reading more about her because there have been other artists who have also you covered. Mentioned. So, Mary Chapin Carpenter, who I've had the pleasure of touring with quite a bit, wrote an amazing song called Oh Rosetta on her album before last. And right. then also Alison Krauss and Robert Plant on their duo album. There's definitely been kind of an upswell mm. of people talking about Sister Rosetta, which again is an excellent thing. You know, and, and hopefully this song and this podcast will contribute to that, to people knowing more about it. Yeah. And and to the history of rock and roll ceasing to be quite so white and male yeah. um, in popular consciousness. I don't know if you do this at shows where, when you perform this song, but I generally, before I um, sing Sister Goodbye, I ask people, have you heard of Sister Rosetta? Sure. Yeah. And I'm always surprised by how few people raise their hands. Yeah. Well, I th- I feel like we're at a point now where more and more musicians have heard of her. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Most yes. most most musicians and songwriters who work in the rock and roll idiom in any way tend to now have some idea of who she was. Yeah. But uh but there's work to do. Yeah. And with all of that in mind, I thought that we could wrap up today, play my song for you, in, re- in return for you playing a song for me. Ah, oh, can't is, wait. Is that okay? That is more than okay. Okay, well here we go. This is uh this is my song. This song is called Sister Is That a, uh, and it goes something like this. Here we go. Rosetta, godmother of rock and roll, the original sister of soul, all our music was in her, she brought rhythm, from the darkness into the light, she brought the good word to the night, to save all our sinners, Rosetta rolled her eyes when she played She knew that strange things happen every day And that the white boy hype would eventually fade But the way that she played would remain New York City It was 1938 The radio couldn't wait for Rosetta to rock it Instant sensation 
and little Elvis, Chuck and Johnny at home I heard her on the gramophone and they wouldn't forget it Rosetta rolled her eyes when she played She knew that strange things happen every day And that the white boy hype would eventually fade But the way that she played would remain Rosetta's in the Hall of Fame Don't let her be forgotten in a church in Arkansas Remember her teaching the cotton club the glory of the Lord Don't let her be forgotten, Rosetta deserves more Remember her teaching a nation on a train platform in England 1964 up above her head and everywhere on a train bound for glory Rosetta rolled her eyes when she played She knew that strange things happen every day And that the white boy hype would eventually fade But the way that she played would remain Rosetta rolled her eyes when she played She knew that strange things happened every day And that the white boy hype would eventually fade But the way that she played would remain Rosetta's in the Hall of Fame Rosetta's in the Hall of Fame Rosetta's in the Hall of Fame You! Cool. That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Lovely. Great. Everybody happy? So there it was, folks. That was the first episode of my podcast, Tales from No Man's Land, and I was joined by the wonderful Emily Barker. Thank you so much for inviting me to oh, come in. You made my day by being here, Emily. Um, it's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. And, of course, the wonderful Wacker at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. You can subscribe to the podcast and give it a review. It really helps us get the word out about it. If you'd like to, you can pre-order my new album, No Man's Land, which is out in August. You can download and stream the song Sister Rosetta right now, wherever you get your music from. And if you'd like to hear Sister Rosetta's music itself, I'll put some links out on my socials on the internet. Next week, there'll be a brand new episode about the colourful life, love and death of a vaudeville singer from the late 19th century in Dodge City, Kansas, called Dora Hand. Many thanks to my producer Hayley Clark and executive producer Peggy Sutton. There was also additional production from Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land, the podcast, comes to you from me, Frank Turner, Extra Mile Recordings and the wonderful Something Else. 